Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we take a sober look at motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories on the Kia Nero hybrid, and Volkswagen announces a new Caddy California camper. And in our featured interviews we have Paul Morell on the Isuzu Ute and the company approach that is paying good dividends. Alan Zervis and I road test the Peugeot 508 Elegant Sedan, and Barry Green gives us his latest extract from his book, Best Drives. Drivenmedia.com.au will give you past programs and further information, or you can podcast programs from Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. Let's get started. Let's have the news. The Kia Nero is a small SUV, but not the smallest, that has now been on the market for a few months. It's not selling particularly well. The big winner in the class is the MG ZS. The Kia comes with some or all electrification, the basic hybrid, the plug-in hybrid, or the all-electric model. The interior of the Kia is neat and modern with a dash layout that integrates well with a 7-inch infotainment screen that is designed into the fascia, not appearing like it was stuck on after. There's good room inside for this size of vehicle and a rated and highly credible 3.8 litres per 100 kilometres fuel consumption. The road noise is high, perhaps aided by the quietness of the hybrid. The basic hybrid model is priced at $40,000. Kia is currently offering to add only $2,000 for on-road costs, but a non-hybrid MG costs $22,000 drive away. Volkswagen Australia has announced the next generation of its camper range, the Caddy California Maxi. The Caddy is a small delivery van, although the camper is built on its long wheelbase version, but this does not make it as spacious a vehicle as the T6.1 California that resembles the original combi in concept and design, including a fridge and a stove. Nonetheless, Volkswagen says that the everyday Caddy workhorse transforms into a stylish and practical weekender with folding seats that transform into a double bed, darkening curtains for the windscreen, doors, tailgate and optional panoramic sunroof, integrated fly screen, storage bays and drawers under the front seats, plus a fold-out table and two chairs. Modern functionality, but not quite the room or the image of the old panel van. Priced from nearly $55,000 plus on roads, you can order one online or through a VW dealer. First deliveries will be in early 2022. Rivian Automotive is the electric vehicle startup backed by Amazon.com. They are based in Irvine, California. They are developing two vehicles, a big ute and a big SUV. Both have individual electric motors driving each of the four wheels. A range of some 480 kilometres, acceleration from 0 to 100 in 3 seconds, or towing 3.5 tonnes. Bloomberg News now reports that they are in negotiations for at least $5 billion US dollars to build another factory near Fort Worth, Texas. The factory, codenamed Project Terra, could produce 200,000 vehicles a year and could create at least 7,500 jobs by 2027. 
Not surprisingly, the local council is keen to have them and is prepared to offer incentives. Other reports suggest that a base model version might have a price tag in Australia of about $95,000, but a launch date not until 2022. The 5th of August has been nominated as International Traffic Light Day. You may have missed it this year. London is credited with installing the first traffic signals in December 1868. It was to allow members of Parliament to cross Bridge Street, adjacent to the Houses of Parliament. The signals were moving semaphores with gas lighting to give red and green colours to augment visibility at night. But America claims the world's first electric traffic signal, built at the intersection of Euclid Avenue and East 105th Street in Cleveland, Ohio, in August 1914. Australia has led the world with its SCAT's Adaptive Coordinated Traffic Signal System that has been used in 28 countries, 187 cities and 55,000 intersections around the world. It originated in Sydney when government departments had a significant commitment to in-house professionals and was first installed in 1975. The New South Wales government has just allocated $60 million to upgrade it. And that has been the news. You're listening to Overdrive. In the first seven months of 2021, the Isuzu Ute brand, now that brand name covers both their two models, which is a Ute and an SUV. We'll talk more about that later. But so far, for the total year to date, they have nearly doubled their sales. But the month of July, the latest figures, comes out that they're up 156% which is two and a half times the the amount that they were last year. Now, last year wasn't great for a variety of reasons, but they are clearly doing well. Now, the ute itself, the ute ute from Isuzu ute, uh, is quite an impressive car. In fact, in the month of July, it is now the fourth best-selling car, individual car, on the Australian market And it was third, but Toyota Corolla has just been making a bit of a comeback. All those things mean that it's a a very, very important car in the market, making a big impact. But what's it like as a vehicle? So who better to talk about it than our good friend Paul Morell from SeniorDriverOz.com. And he joins us on the line. G'day, Paul. Hello, David. The Ute, you've been driving one. Which model? I've been driving the Isuzu Ute, the Ute Ute, not the SUV, which is the top of the range D-Max X-Terrain. So this is a dual cab with all the bells and whistles? Oh, all the bells and whistles indeed. It's incredibly well kitted out. A nice thing to drive. What's it worth? Let's put it in perspective immediately. Let's always put it immediately in perspective. At the moment, they're doing it on a special deal, which is a fifty nine nine ninety drive away price, and that's I think about oh, a little less than two thousand dollars off the price, which makes it very good value in this market. That's incredibly good value because uh, it's not hard to get a Hilux in the high sixties, early seventies plus on road costs, is it? Oh, very easy to do that. These Utes are becoming incredibly well equipped. They're becoming very safe because they're getting all the safety gear and commensurately the prices of going up as you'd understand but this one uh, comes let's talk about the safety gear first this is not compromising in that area oh safety is, is 
Look, it's one of the areas that Isuzu has obviously applied itself to, and they really have um, lifted the lifted their game in this area. Um, they have what they call the IDAS, I-D-A-S, which is called the Intelligent Driver Assistance System, which probably limits its market because not many drivers in Australia are intelligent. <laughs> but it, it does actually standardise active and passive safety with driver assist technology across the range. So that, that's now pretty much every vehicle has... Very extensive safety gear. I like it across the range, but when it says intelligent, it's basically saying so as not to have to rely on you. Oh, exactly, exactly. You, the driver, yeah. And and, and comfort? Now, this is another area. Um, back in the in the bad old days, and we're both old enough to remember the bad old days, um, Isuzu Utes were, how can I put this kindly, they were perhaps we'd call it agricultural. Tough as old boots. The politest word might be functional. Functional, that's a better word. <laughs> Although agricultural is is pretty much on the line. I think it was. They Look, that's one of the reasons they've built this incredible reputation for dependability, reliability, toughness, if you like. Um, they're almost unbreakable in that sense. Um, and they've sort of, they made their name for that. Now they've managed to maintain that, that toughness aspect but also make them more more user friendly, more more driver passenger friendly. So it's it's a it's a good move all around. Utes have had to do that to be part family car, part workhorse. But I think that the Isuzu brand name has moved enormously. All of them have moved a long way, but perhaps Isuzu has moved some of the furthest way. Yeah, well, in some ways, I guess you could say they've had a they had further to move but it's i I use the word a bit carefully but it's a bit of a crossover in the sense that these these vehicles that were designed for tradespeople and to do a job in a in a commercial sense were adopted by by private buyers so therefore the the vehicles themselves have had to modify or be modified be adapted to be more suitable to private buyers. And now they're massively more popular probably with private buyers. They're being bought by everybody. Um, Mm. So they have to compete on the same level as any other vehicle. But can you still get a base model without as much bells and whistles? Absolutely, you can. Um, I mean, we tend to forget that the Ute in particular, because it is designed as a a commercial vehicle, I mean, it starts off as a a single cab chassis. Mm. So, you know, for a two-wheel drive manual manual gearbox, single cab chassis on which you build whatever you like on the back. You know, tradesmen will put a tray on or they'll put a cover over it, whatever. I mean, that starts at like 29,990 drive away. So mm. from there, you then work your way up through the through the range until you get to the top of the range, which is a $60,000 D-Max X terrain, um, all of which have the same inherent basic ability to do Anything you ask of them, basically. We've mentioned that uh, they came from a mm, rough and tough heritage, and, and good luck to that. Is the Isuzu name a tough one, do you think, to give uh, or to gain that sort of, hey, it's a respectable family-come-workhorse car? I don't think many people know much about the the heritage of Isuzu or, indeed, much about the company they're buying the vehicles purely on the merits of the vehicle um mm. Asuzu seems to have seems to have developed this this 
um, this loyalty through simply providing a really good product. Um, you know, I haven't heard of anyone who's had any problems with them. Um, I haven't heard of any of them breaking down or having a pro- any issues. You know, the, the vehicle has just simply sold itself on its own basic level. And I must say to you that, you know, some many years ago, if you'll remember, the, the Suzu Ute was the same basic vehicle as the Holden Colorado. And I think I wrote a review at that at some stage many years ago, and I said, well, you know, the Holden Colorado obviously outsells the Isuzu Ute, at which time I got a very quick phone call from the company saying, no. So they've been outselling not just other issues, not just other crew cab utes. They're even outselling the vehicle that was pretty much the identical vehicle with a Holden badge. So it's, it really has, it really has developed a following through its honesty, if you like. I mean, Isuzu, it's interesting that Isuzu have this Incredible. I mean, they've, they've, as you say, they've become quite a quite an important player in the Australian market. In the Isuzu Ute, for example, is the Australian market is second only to Thailand when it comes to people buying the, the Isuzu Ute, um, and it's just incredible that they have two two products. They have a, a an SUV and they have a crew cab Ute. I mean, apart from all of the variants within those two models, they they literally are doing this with two models. Unheard of. It's remarkable when you consider that something like Mercedes has 26 models there and Isuzu Ute is one uh, one ahead of them on the sales market so far this year. Mm. Uh, ahead of BMW, ahead of Honda, Suzuki, Audi. You know, that there's a fair amount of uh, sales there. It's uh, just behind, not far behind, uh, Subaru. Well, that's exactly right. Um I mean, they are outsold. I must admit, its closest competitor in the market probably is the Toyota Prado. And to be fair, uh, the Toyota Prado outsells the Isuzu Ute probably two to one. But that will change, I think. I think, you know, as time goes on, the only thing that's going to be a problem here is, is getting hold of one. Really spend a lot of time talking to Australian customers about what they wanted, what they weren't happy with, how it could be improved for the Australian market. Um, they really have responded to, well, they, they, they went out and asked Australians what they wanted, and the Australian input has been fairly strong. I like that approach that, you know, it's possibly more word of mouth than it's just marketing hype. I, I like that. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's interesting that the, the Isuzu, for example, their research says that um, at least half of its customers use their vehicles to tow. Now, you'd say that's sort of obvious, but the fact that they've actually gone out and, and checked that and said, okay, half of our vehicles half of our vehicles are used as tow vehicles, and by the way, it's now up to a three-and-a-half-tonne braked towing capacity, um, they've done a number of things there that will, that will make that more easy, <laughs> make that easier to deal with. Simple things like, um, you know, if you, want to, if, if, if you want to fit a snorkel, for example, to take the thing through water, um, Isuzu has now put a special cutout and, a, and a, almost a, a pre-prepared pathway for the, for the snorkel to make it easier to fit a snorkel. Um, they've, um, they've fiddled around with the rear bumper bar to make tow bar attachment easier. You know, those little things, that's, that's attention to detail that really is impressive. I like it, and I like it a lot, and that's particularly the new launched MUX. Exactly. Paul, that's lovely because I think 
and I know you get good feedback from your readers and uh, that's an important point and I think that's reflected in the sorts of things that obviously impress you that are not just the uh, immediate marketing hype, the uh, immediate marketing hype. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, last week we talked about a rather elegant sports, or not rather, an absolute elegant sports back. A car, sedan, Audi RS7, that was a sedan but with a fastback look, which had style. Now this week, we have one that I think has style too, but it is a lot cheaper on the market. And again, we call upon the expertise of Alan Zervis from Gay Car Boys. G'day, Alan. David, how are you? Very well, thank you. What are we talking about here? Peugeot's 508, and I think this might just be a country's best kept secret. Peugeot have been hoisting their flag on revised SUVs, and they're not being particularly cheap. They're not exorbitant, but they're certainly not the cheapest in the market. The the 508 sedan, I think, is often overlooked when it is a very, very good-looking car. Indeed it is, and talking about price, it is about a quarter of the price of that Audi that we talked about last week, but it's the same basic shape. It's that fastback shape, so four doors, rear hatch. Uh, of course, that takes away from some of the rear uh, occupant headroom, but uh, is it worth it for the look? Gee, I think so. Just put short people in the back. We had one with very nice seats uh, with a lovely pattern on them. How did you find the interior? Oh, I think it is absolutely beautiful. It's measured very carefully, and it feels like it would fit almost any driver that sat behind the wheel. It's got everything in it you could possibly need, even a little bit of a massaging seat, and everything looks quality except for some of the plastic, which I thought looked a bit cheap. I love the set-out of the sitting in the driver's seat with the, the almost piano keys buttons beside you that gave you that feeling and they were angled a bit towards you as though you were in the cockpit and you are in control. Very much so. It had a, a bit of a feeling of a cross between, say, a, a fighter jet and a, you know, a luxury boat. It just looked the part and you could just reach your hands out, touch everything that you needed to adjust, uh, but it wasn't without its quirks. No, indeed not. When I first got in the car, you had been driving it and the steering wheel was down low, but that wasn't a reflection of your preference. It was a fact that they require you to look over the steering wheel to actually see the dials in front of you. Yes, that's called the eye cockpit. It's a very small steering wheel, flat bottom and a kind of a flattish top. And you look over at the driver's instruments. Now, it's small and low so that you can see the instruments. So it feels a little bit like um, maybe a go-kart. I also thought like a plane too. You know that one where the, the controls are sitting down lower? You have more dials and things over the top of it. Yeah, that's what it gave me the feeling too. But you said it had a couple of quirks. What were you referring to there? Well, along with the Star Trek-type instruments and controls, you get in and you want to plug your phone into Apple CarPlay, right? It doesn't have wireless CarPlay, so you've got to plug it in. So I got in, and the USBs are under the centre console, and there's two of them. Now, the only way that men of, uh, shall we say, a certain age can see them is to get down on their hands and knees and look underneath, because you can't kind of bend 
unless you're an escapee from a Cirque du Soleil, I don't know how you'd possibly get there. A couple of things there I haven't done for a while. And the thing about those USBs, David, is only one does Apple CarPlay and only one does USB streaming. And you've got to find out which is which, and I had mine plugged into the wrong one. It might have had a little symbol beside it, of which it doesn't come to mind immediately what symbol means what. Well, it wasn't, David, because you've got to be on your hands and knees to see it. You've got to get down and look underneath. Now, why they just didn't put it up top is absolutely beyond me. The difficulty is that it's not quite as easy for, say, the back seat passengers and so on. It compromises a little bit there as well. It does very much. The roof is very, very low because of that fastback shape. And like the front seats, you have to sit in a specific way. But I drove it on a very cold night and it seemed like it had a little bit of a flutter, either when it was changing and not quite engaging in one clear click from the automatic gearbox or the engine was fluttering when you're backing off, not when you're accelerating. When you accelerated, it sounded pretty good. Now, it has... But David, David, perhaps the flutter was just in your heart because you were so impressed. <laughs> that's another thing that's been a long while. <laughs> Much horsepower? David, it's not got what I'd call bags of power. It's what Rolls-Royce used to say. It is sufficient. It's 165 kilowatts, 300 newton metres from this turbo 1.6. It gets along fairly well. It's very smooth. And as we used to say in the old parlance, linear. So it doesn't slap you in the back of the head. It doesn't weigh as much as uh, I might have expected. No, I, I was surprised at that too. It's uh, a little over 1,300 kilos. So, you know, to you and me, uh, I mean, I would have expected it to be 1,500 at least. An old Commodore, one of the bigger ones made in Australia, they would have weighed around the 1,600, 1,700 kilograms. So power to weight is probably not too bad for what we might have been used to. Well, that was, a, a you know, not much heavier than one of those old Kingswoods from the 70s, and they had nothing in them. This has got little electric motors everywhere. The seats are electric, and, and there's smart cruise control and smart lane control, and there's sensors all over the place. You know, like most new cars, David, you give this a bash and a bumper, and you're up for a world of hurt. Value for money in terms of outside looks is obviously top. Inside, it's uh, particularly good too. Perhaps not quite as refined as uh, you might have uh, expected from Peugeot in a few little quirky things, but certainly something you could live with. For me, it was the handling. It handles beautifully. There's no surprises. It's a front-wheel drive uh, with this eight-speed automatic, and it is beautifully mannered, really elegant, has uh, adjustable suspension, so it's uh, it's adaptive suspension, but it makes you feel like like you're in something sportier than what it actually is. Alan, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Take care. And that's Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys, again reviewing another flowing sportsback car which has elegance in design. This time a Peugeot which cost about one quarter of last week's Audi. This is Overdrive across Australia. 
Audi RS5 Sportback is perhaps the most elegant mid-size vehicle on the market. It exudes a sense of style and grace that doesn't come around all that often. It's a difficult choice between the coupe and the Sportback, however the practicality combined with the good looks of the Sportback is the winner for me. Powered by a 3 litre V6 TFSI petrol engine, it's good for 0 to 100 time of about 3.9 seconds with a top speed of 250 kilometres an hour. The RS5 has an 8-speed sports automatic transmission along with the brilliant Quattro drivetrain. The beauty of the engine though is how easy it is to drive normally around town and how economical it is while still having sports car performance. Yes, it's full of comfort and luxury features as well as the full suite of safety functions as you would expect. But the essence of the RS5 is how comfortable the occupants are while hiding its true sporting nature. The Sportback will also swallow a heap of luggage for that family trip as well. Priced from around $151,000 plus the usual cost, it's also an absolute performance bargain. It makes an excellent long distance Grand Tourer, has an almost perfect balance of size, performance and everyday practicality and is perhaps my favourite sports saloon. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Not all cars have to be powerful or limited in numbers being elitist some cars change the very zeitgeist the spirit of the times now barry green you drove one that had great performance but you chose to drive but you chose to drive it and battle with traffic in london what was the car uh the car was a mini something which is synonymous with london of course going back to the carnaby street era but this was a late 90s job, the last of the Rover era minis, and it, it was a little limited edition, 1,800 cars, only 300 of which uh, remained in England, or UK, sorry, and it was called the Paul Smith SE Special Edition. Who was Paul Smith? Uh, Paul Smith is now a Sir Paul Smith. He's a famous designer by way of fashion, I guess, contemporary living, and... Uh, he was commissioned by Rover towards the end of the, their time uh, with the Mini, and he uh, did up one car, one with it, all his bespoke artwork. He, he really works in stripes, stripe beside stripe beside stripe, and uh, that car, of course, became a museum piece, but then Rover produced 1,800 examples for sale, and... It was called the Paul Smith SE Special Edition. It had mini light mags, didn't it? Or certainly mag wheels. Yeah, all that stuff. Banks, the one I drove had big row of driving lights at the front. You look like it was straight out of... Um, Mon- Monte Carlo Rally, doesn't it? Yeah, or, or um, the Italian job. <laughs> With these Paul Smith minis, they, they came out in a particular paint scheme. Uh, even inside things like the, uh, the glove box boot under the bonnet was some of his design work you know all this multi-striping and there's a little gold um, badge on the bonnet I mean it was all dressed up stuff like it, uh, it certainly didn't make the car go any faster but bit of bling oh absolutely in fact it, it set in, if you really think about it it set the tone for what the BMW era minis have come to be okay. you know with uh, with all that roundness you know in the um in the interior, you know, like I suppose it's uh, it's echoing that uh, the big dial, you know, the big big dial, yeah, big central dial that the original um, BMC Minis had. They turned that into the the infotainment screens, didn't they? That's right. 
Those big dials were the speedo in the original Mini, which were best seen by the car following you, weren't they? <laughs> exactly, yeah, because really they were they were right in the centre of the car and set rather low, so I think you, you nearly had to take your eye off the road to, um, to look down at them. The Mini was, of course, one of the people's cars, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. You may go back to the Model T Ford, you come for later the Beetle, yep. the, the Fiat 500, maybe even the Citroen 2CV, which you drove and we'll talk about later. But the Mini, as I say, the, the zeitgeist of the time, it, it changed it. You had people like Spike Milligan, even royalty, Princess Margaret, yeah, yeah. was seen driving in one. That, that really did make buzzing about the city a really with it sort of thing to do and I choose my words carefully absolutely yeah and and that's really why I picked it for that drive around London I mean you you wouldn't drive around London in your right mind I mean it's probably one of the most car unfriendly cities anywhere you know not just with congestion and stuff but the parking and you know uh, charges you know infestation of speed cameras and red light cameras and all that stuff, speed zones. Like when I was driving around, it was it hit so many uh, areas that were 25 mile an hour, which of course is 40 k an hour, and uh, mm. you really had to watch it because zero tolerance. So I thought I'd, I'd do it like a Top Gear challenge, and I'll drive around after midnight when theoretically there's going to be fewer cars and congestion, blah blah blah. And I'd take in uh, like a tour of all the landmarks or popular landmarks and just see how it went at that hour of the, the day or night, I guess. You've got a glorious big picture of a Coca-Cola sign, haven't you? Neon lights. Isn't that typical of that sort of bright, sparky time that uh, the Mini was heralding in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that famous corner, neon corner at Piccadilly Circus. Hmm. I mean, when you, when you approach that, in a car, especially at night when it's all lit up, you know, you really, you can only be one place on earth. Um, and that corner has been lit that way for, for I don't know how long, pre-World War Two for sure. And then there's the statue of Eros there on the, um, you know, the other side of the road. And, and yeah, it's like pinch me stuff. Like, um, and of course, if you're seated in something like one of those little original minis, you know, you, everything looks pretty amazing, larger than life. So... <laughs> I enjoyed that aspect of it. Peter Sellers had one, and uh, did people respond to it? I know you went late at night, but did anyone react to the fact uh, in this pretty little mini? Yeah. Yeah, well, we were going through Soho, and, uh, you know, that place, even at that era, you know, there's all the, the pubs and clubs going, and um, I was sort of stationary there for a while, and, and these three guys, you know, in leather and denim, started walking across the road to the, towards the Mini and I thought, oh, God, what are they going to do? Are they going to turn it over or what? And then they sort of broke into these big watermelon slice grins and yelled out, hey, man, you've got the coolest car. I gave them the thumbs up and a big grin back, but uh, it was a bit of a nervous moment. But, yeah, like, they related to it. <laughs> well, if you had have been in a Rolls Royce, you might have been in more trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're all a porker, you know, uh, Porsche. I mean, anything I think that looked like it was dripping with affluence or uh, try-hard probably would have got that reaction from them. But something like a Mini, it's pretty inoffensive, isn't it? 
I drove a Mini Cooper S once and gave a lift to a guy who was a broadcaster from the ABC and I dropped him off and uh, as I drove out he gave that classic signal, the spinning of the forefingers, in other words, chuck a wheelie. <laughs> I think it evoked that and as, as I say, it evoked the time. All right, Barry, how can I get your book? With the COVID situation, I haven't been able to establish any, get it in any bookstores yet. My email is greenbw, that's Green Barry Williams, so greenbw1953 at gmail.com. What's it cost? Postage anywhere in Australia is $55. Barry, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, good. Thanks, David. Cheers. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Barry Green, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Drivenmedia.com.au is a place to go for more information. All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.